coming up this hour, we're going to talk about how do we navigate different views of whether or not we should open up after COVID-19. And then we're going to talk conspiracy theories. That's coming up here on The Common Good. everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, as always, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find us online, 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe. Go ahead and rev- rate and review. And uh, uh, I was uh, Ian, I was looking today. We got a couple more reviews, and one of them, I need to look it up, had a really funny like name, like a, like a really funny. It's not their actual name, but... I was going to say, are you making fun of someone's name to start the show off today? Their screen name was hilarious. I'm going to look it up while we go here. But while I do that, how is uh, your Tuesday going? I mean, I already told you some stuff off air that I'm not allowed to repeat here about how my day is going. But uh, <laughs> That's true. Other than that story, wink, wink. Um, yeah, not, I'd say not bad. The, the rain, <laughs> I look at the, I mean, just the forecast of like rain Monday, rain Tuesday, yes. rain Wednesday. It'll be nice Thursday. I'm like such a sucker. I'm still like, hey, at least we have Thursday to look forward to. At least we have Thursday. Jeez, Louise, man. But no, it's it's been great. We uh, we've gotten some good family time. We're doing some baking, and we're Owen's really into stickers right now. So I'm finding animal stickers all over the house in places they should not be, which is great. And my youngest, Redmond, um, he he has more behavior traits like a little puppy than I've ever seen in a human in my life. He like. <laughs> shakes his head like the way a dog does like he just he barks it's so funny that's it sounds like a puppy (laughs) it's really really a lot of fun that is funny i am holding out for saturday saturday is going to be over 70 degrees and no rain as of now that could change we all do know that could end up being 35 and snow flurries but right right now That is showing good. So the good review we got, the uh, the uh, screen name was 5 a.m. Club Dub. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank I don't, you so much for that review, 5 a.m. Club Dub. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> anyway, we're glad to have you joining us, uh, especially in these strange times. We try to provide some laughs, but also uh, try to provide some conversation around some of the things all of us are wrestling with right now. Uh, especially during this time when we're all in our homes. And uh, now that some states are starting to open up and other states like our our own are not. And the other day we talked yesterday, we talked about quarantine fatigue. Some people wanting to kind of cut corners uh, while other people are are really sticking hard to everything we're supposed to be doing. Uh, And so with all that in mind, I found this article uh, at for the church FTC.co Uh, And it's the article is entitled this uh, navigating different COVID-19 recovery convictions. Let me read Mm. just the first paragraph or two and get your feel. If there's one word to describe how we must navigate reassimilation amid COVID-19, it's this grace. A friend of mine who happens to be the vice president of a prominent seminary and no stranger to the challenges in leadership recently tweeted words that accurately predict the current uh, and coming landscapes in homes, families and friendships. Charles Smith wrote prediction. One of the most challenging aspects of the COVID-19 recovery will be a dis- will be disagreements 
over acceptable post-COVID social norms between friends and family. Hurt Mm. feelings will abound if we're not careful. Extend lots of grace. Everyone is different. Let me pause there. What do you think about, uh, well, first of all, are you seeing that right now, even with your friends or people on your social media, these kind of different views? And do you think it is somewhere we should be uh, showing grace or is it more of a spot where we should be digging in uh, and go with this? Well, you could probably probably predict my response. response. I've been thinking about this a ton, though. Like, Part of what's interesting to me is that we don't really know what this is going to look like, and everyone's just trying to make their best guess. And being pastors, you know, one of the environments that I I just keep thinking about is what is a Sunday morning going to look like? Like once we're actually able to gather at full tilt again, you know, I'm a hugger, I'm a handshaker, but I know that plenty of people, I mean, that already exists. That's, that is kind of the nice thing about if you're already a little self-aware, you already know that people have varying degrees of comfort with any physical interaction. I think it's just going to require a whole lot more intentionality, but I think this author is right though. I think it's going to be more than just, Oh, thanks for clarifying expectations. I think it is, it is going to result in some cases in hurt feelings and the author goes on to outline, you know, some of the different, uh, the following COVID-19 profiles, cautious, confident, cautious-dent, which I don't uh, know what that really means. And, and then it kind of ends by saying it's okay to be different. And I think that's a really, that's a really important message because we've never had to navigate anything like this before. So to answer your question, I think we really, really need to proactively be offering each other grace because it's going to be so strange for all of us. Like we're all experiencing whether you're way on the conservative end or way more comfortable with physical internet, either way, it's still a new normal that we all have to navigate together, which is tough. Yeah. And, and you see it already, not that Facebook is always the best barometer or indicator, but you know, you see these protests at different States and I'm starting to see on my social media, on my Facebook or Twitter, uh, not only differing opinions, but people are starting to get really, Mm, vitriolic about it like really? it, it strikes me i don't know if you've seen this it strikes me that people are starting to you know anything that gets politicized on the one hand but also there's very little uh i'm really surprised by how much people are picking sides like mm. oh see we need to be opening up and like going at the people who aren't like we should open up and vice versa if you think we should start slowly be opening up people being like you want people dead and here's this chart and like I've been kind of surprised by how hard people are going at each other. And uh, and so I do think this call, especially within the church, like you just said, we have these calls to make as a culture, but we're going to have these calls to make as churches, too. Some churches right, are like, right. we're open. Others are going to be like, we're not opening yet. Uh, and just showing grace to, to government officials, to pastors, but also to one another that uh, – You know, you and I have talked often about how, like, often now to be a Democrat, you have to hate a Republican, hate the Republicans and vice versa. It almost feels like it's getting to that point. Like, if you if you think we should be opening up sooner, you have to, like, you know, go in on those that don't, as opposed to there being like some grace about, you know, what I just disagree. But like, I I get where you're coming from. I don't know. I I sense that this is just going to kind of ramp up even more and more, which I didn't see coming. Well, and I like the way it ends, too. It says, here are four attitudes for COVID-19 recovery that will strengthen your ability to navigate differing views and approaches. Number one, optimistic people are a blessing to my life. It keeps me hopeful about the future and enables me to embrace uncertainty as opportunity. Number two, cautious people are a blessing to my life. It keeps me sensitive to the needs and concerns of others and enables me to make prudent decisions. Number three, different gifts and approaches make us all more effective. 
Pride demands that everyone do things the way we demand. Read 1 Corinthians 12 and celebrate different gifts. And then number four, people matter more than my opinion. Being in healthy relationships with people is a privilege that requires me to love others above myself. When I am highly opinionated, I can needlessly hurt others. I think it was Andy Stanley that said, never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Mm. I think that's that's kind of, and then the whole section that ends here, and I would encourage you to go to the Facebook page, read the whole thing, talks about how do we choose love in the midst of differences, which I think is a, a really important, timely challenge. Yeah, he says, what will it matter if we reassimilate only to end up socially distant again, right. not because of a virus, but because of our inability to love? That's so powerful, as you read. Really good. That's really uh, good. Ri- written by Costi, uh, Costi, C-O-S-T-I, Costi Hin, uh, a relative of Benny Hinn, I would I would. Uh, he couldn't be more different than Benny Hinn. And uh, I would encourage you to Google him. But you can find this at our Facebook page, uh, all about what does it look like to show grace uh, to one another? Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories uh, and what do we do with those as the Christ follower. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on what was a beautiful Tuesday. A little bit overcast now and uh, some rain in the forecast tonight. But that's your weather today here on The Common Good. But we are glad to have you join us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. And uh, before... Uh, we talk about conspiracy theories and this great article that we found at medium.com. Let me tell you about something I'm excited that we're doing here at the station, because during the coronavirus pandemic, we do know uh, that there are many businesses, unfortunately, that have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we'll start compiling all of that information and sharing it with our listeners. The best part is it's totally free, no catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Wow. Wow. Can I get an applause sound effect? (laughs) There it is. My goodness. My goodness. Uh, so conspiracy theories, uh, Ed Stetzer wrote about him at Christianity today last week, but this mm-hmm. article you found out of medium written by Kenneth Tanner, uh, entitled love rules, the world, not conspiracy. Uh, I found it to be fascinating. So what I thought we, uh, will react a little bit to it. This is Kenneth Tanner's love rules, the world, not conspiracy. Yeah, Kenneth Tanner is one of my favorite people to follow on social media. He's a pastor of uh, Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Find him on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, The man is just brilliant. So I'll read it, and then we'll respond with whatever time we have left. So it says, love rules the world, not conspiracy. And the subheading is, the gospel is public information, not hidden, not secret. And that's why Christians should be immune from closeted delusions. So he begins with this. Conspiracy theories are a lot like Gnosticism. They claim that only an enlightened few know what is actually going on in the world and what almost everyone else knows is a lie, that the knowledge available to the average person on the street is unreliable. The true believer who spreads these conspiracies is like the member of a mystery cult in the know, no matter how disconnected from important events he or she may be, no matter how unreal their imagined scenarios are in the face of realities. And by implication, 
most people trying to make their way in the world and care for their families who have almost no time for anything but work and precious little time for reflection have not the first clue, again, according to the conspiratorially obsessed. Only the most centered and widely informed persons can resist the temptation to superiority, false certainty, and preoccupation that often follows this phenomenon. The theories prey on those who live in understandable apprehension in moments like this one and increase the everyday anxiety of many. Conspiratorial whispers and broadcasts are a scourge and destructive on human trust and the brotherhood as a virus to the human body. I cannot believe how many who trust in Christ are manipulated and misled in their daily lives by what is so often nonsense. An obsession with wild speculation steals energy from the sort of practical imitation that the spirit empowers in us when we take time to contemplate the life of Jesus, care for the stranger, the prisoner, the sick, the hungry and thirsty, the naked, the sex slave, the widow and the orphan. It's sexier to tell others about a fearsome secret cabal that controls everything and everyone. The good news is that the gospel, the things that God has done to make the world right again, what God has done to secure everyone's future is public information available to everyone. And this gospel, this love, casts out fear. The gospel says over and over and over again, do not be afraid. I don't deny the possibility of conspiracies. They certainly do occur and can have devastating consequences, even when involving only a few. The assassination of Lincoln, for example. But conspiracies are not stronger than love and often fail to achieve their ultimate ends because the wounded God publicly executed in the most shameful manner is the true Lord of history. This crucified human God who is yet alive and embodied beyond death has been given the guardianship of the cosmos, not temporary rulers and plotters who forget that they are, but blades of grass here today and mown down by death tomorrow. Again, I'm not suggesting that conspiracies do not in fact occur but they don't for the Christian replace the story of the wounded God who loves the world that he makes and who dies for love of the world as the true story of the world. Whatever temporary evils might preen or posture or imagine they control the destiny of anyone or anything. God is never an agent in evil. So there is much that occurs in this world that has nothing whatsoever to do with his will. And we can, like God, be victims of evil. Christians trust that God is orchestrating an end to evil where his total victory on the cross somehow makes all things well and converts the greatest human and demonic conspiracy or rejection and the murder of God into an infinite good that brings permanence to the cosmos and life without end to human nature. And that is why we fear not. And while some things that seem far-fetched end up being true, we do not orient our lives to speculations or explanations that give us a sense of control amid chaos or that sell us insider information to combat anxiety amid uncertainty. Instead, we trust a public life and a public execution that reveals the world's true story. The gospel is the best possible news in a perplexing time. There is evil and randomness, and we are not in control, but genuine love has conquered and overcome darkness by self-giving, co-suffering humility love is revealed not secret or hidden and love wins man kenneth turner you and i talk about all the time about people when you read a good writer you're like oh man that's good so thanks for reading that that was i know a little long but thanks for reading that and i thought it was important for a couple different reasons one is uh in perplexing times the way he uses words like that there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. There are a lot of conspiracy theories out there right now around COVID-19 and what's going on in our world. And uh, some of them are small conspiracies. Some of them are enormous conspiracy theories. Right. And so uh, 
into the Christ follower after what we read there to the Christ follower who uh, who uh, kind of trades in conspiracy theories, who's kind of, uh, you know, somebody who passes them on or reads them. Uh, how would you sum up what Kenneth Turner said there or what would you tell them about the danger of that? Well, just to be clear, it's Kenneth Tanner. Just so people. Oh, my bad. Kenneth. My bad. Sorry about that. That's all right. I got I the first. I got the first letter and the last letter right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's half the battle. I, I think part of what makes it tricky is that people don't tend to know they're sharing conspiracies. Interesting. When they're sharing them, like I don't think people, hopefully not, are are like willingly being duped and then sharing their false information. That maybe sometimes happens, but I think part of what he's getting at is we're all susceptible to it which is why it makes it all the more important to actually remember and to do that communally, to remember what we're actually rooted in. And that doesn't necessarily, like he said, mean that like evil isn't still going to affect us at times and we're not still going to be at times caused to real fear and anxiety. And I, and I don't think he's shaming any of that, but, but to remember though, and this is what I think is so tricky, especially now in this reality where you can follow any Christian celebrity you want on Twitter or Facebook it seems like it's very easy to kind of get knocked all over the place now by whatever this celebrity or that camp or this political yeah. party is saying. And I think part of what he's getting at, like a good pastor does, is to make the first thing first. Because when we get that out of whack, everything else seems to sort of fall apart. And and I've seen him do this repeatedly through his online presence is helping us actually remember the center of the story, what's most true about us and God, and not downplaying the other realities around us, but helping us first be rooted and rounded in that which is our vitality and sustenance because when we remove ourselves from that well then of course we're going to believe anything that comes across the ticker or anything that gets posted on our wall like that that yeah. we're just that much more susceptible and i think i think part of what he's doing there is just good pastoral shepherding absolutely let me end again with what you read at the very end there the gospel is the best possible news in a perplexing time hmm. there's evil and randomness and we are not in control but genuine love is conquered and overcome darkness by self-giving co-suffering humility love is revealed not secret or hidden and love wins what a powerful article you can find that at our facebook page the common good radio show uh written there by kenneth tanner at medium.com well coming up next uh, from Christianity Today, six ways to shepherd when you can't see the sheep. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon. As always, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we're grateful to all of you who are doing that. Uh, over at Christianity Today uh, on Ed Stetzer's blog, um, Jeff Christofferson wrote about more to pastors about six ways to shepherd when you can't see the sheep. It's more written towards pastors, but I think there's a lot in here just for how to care for your your friends and your neighbors and everybody else when you mm-hmm. can't see them. So we're going to dig into that here in a second. But before that, uh, Ian, why don't you share a little bit, as you have been doing, about Thrivent? Yeah, as some of you have heard, so Thrivent has been a big part of my life for the better part of a decade. In fact, when I was pastoring in Bartlett, they came alongside me and two other pastors in the area to help us put on a marriage conference, which was awesome. Like we couldn't have done it without them. So I've been a member for seven, eight years. You can learn more at thrivein.com. But if you're also maybe looking for a career change right now, like this could be the perfect opportunity. Thrivein.com slash careers is where you can go to learn more. 
Plus, they're in the midst of hosting all sorts of wonderful, helpful webinars right now to help all of us kind of navigate these uncertain times. In fact, I was just on a call with them yesterday and they were kind of brainstorming like, what are things that we could do for young parents? What are things we could do for marriages? Like they're really working hard to provide content for people to help them like be wise with money and live generously, which is, I think, a really, really important, you know, ethos for an organization, which is why I've been a a part of their team for so long, just because I think they do great work. So thriving.com or thriving.com slash careers. Plus we're posting all the webinar information on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. I encourage you to go check it out. So Jeff Christofferson, as we said at Christianity today, uh, he wrote this six ways to shepherd when you can't see the sheep in the wake of our pandemic, many godly shepherds are now faced with the daunting challenge of shepherding from a distance. So again, mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about shepherding, we're talking about pastors, but this could be lay leaders in the church. This could just be people who are uh, quote unquote shepherding, you know, loved ones or friends or whatever else. And uh, I think he makes some very interesting point. Let me give you the introduction here. He says the work of pastoral ministry is biblically described as the assignment of under shepherding hmm. implicit in the biblical metaphor is that shepherds care for the sheep, protect the sheep and lead the sheep to nutritious pasture lands. All of this seemingly necessitates physical presence as we lead under the authority of the great shepherd. The very language associated with shepherding connotates a proximity that keeps us smelling like sheep. We are intimately aware of their needs and constantly seeking out their best interest. The incarnational presence of the shepherd lies at the heart of Jesus's illustration in John 10 when he said, Truly, I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief. And a robber, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his sheep his own. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So you know, I'll pause there. This concept of shepherding uh, and the the, uh, the implication about proximity. You and I have talked about this a bunch of times. This is kind of another way of getting at this. So A, is this metaphor helpful for you, this biblical metaphor? But B, Tell us again the frustrations, maybe pastorally, you're feeling of of lacking proximity to people. Well, one, I don't feel comfortable saying no. This biblical metaphor. Is <laughs> I did stack the deck. <laughs> there. Like, hey, is this word from the Lord helpful or unhelpful for you, Ian? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I guess I'll go with helpful. I I will say though, I've never I've never loved pastors referring to their people as sheep. Just no. To, just to be honest, I know that the metaphor is right from the pages of scripture and it maybe meant something different then than it does now. Either way, I've literally heard pastors give sermons on it. Like, you know, sheep are dumb, right? I'm like, why? <laughs> why are you doing this? This feels so. But we do use the word shepherding a lot. And I think right. I am of the belief that everyone to some degree has a shepherding capacity. But I believe some people have like a shepherding gift, like a shepherding wiring. And what I mean by that is they're the person that you're with that you just feel so cared for, like you have 110% of their attention, like they they want to help walk you through difficulty and trial, which again can be a lot of people, but shepherds in particular, man, they like, they just care for people. You know, we have a couple of shepherds on our team that our, our church is so much better for just because they like see people in such a profound way, which I know when I think of some of those names, they're the ones, and I know that we're all struggling, but they tend to be the ones that are feeling some of this distance the most. Because what like gives them life is to be able to be with people and yeah. to help, you know, walk through difficulties and to pray with them and to counsel them. So to not be able to do that or to or to have to do it from a distance, 
uh, is actually really tricky. And again, that's not to say that we're not all grateful that we have things like Zoom and Google. All that stuff is useful, but it, you and I both know it's just it's not the same, right? So right. It, I, the article actually says, yes, technology is a meager substitute for presence, but the fact remains that you are not cut off from the sheep. So that's a good reminder for all the for all the people that I've seen post about that. I have seen a number of pastors post something to the tune of, I'm a pastor, not a producer. I, I'm done just creating content and putting it online. I want to pastor people. I, I've seen so mm. many pastors kind of echo that same sentiment. Like, this is not why I became a pastor, which I know a lot of people are feeling. And I think that that's, like you were saying, this isn't just for pastors. Obviously, a lot of people are feeling this disconnect in a really, right. really like profound way. That's right. So uh, Jeff Christofferson goes on to say, so let me suggest six practices when we ask mm. the question, what's a shepherd to do now that proximity with sheep is impossible. So if we can't be physically with each other, if we can't be uh, in that sort of connection, then what can we do? So let me run through his six. I want we do this way. I'll run through all six. And why don't you tell me which one or two maybe stand out to you? Okay. Uh, the first one he says is thank God for what you do have. It's what yep. you just touched on. Technology is a meager substitute, but the fact remains you're not cut off from the sheep. As you had just said, you can still yep. talk with them, see their faces, hear their concerns rather than lamenting what we've lost. Sensible shepherds remain thankful for God's common grace that in his goodness, he created a world where technology allows for human connection. Number two, uh, depend on the work of the spirit, uh, depend on the spirit's work through prayer. While you can't be physically present, God in his spirit is always present with his sheep. Hmm. Perhaps this time of scattering is a gift to remind us that the assignment of shepherding was never our sole responsibility. The danger of proximity is that it can subtly lead us to believe that the care, protection, and direction of the sheep is exclusively our responsibility and Hmm. that the well-being of the sheep is our responsibility to procure. Now more than ever, faithful shepherds will find grace to appeal to the Father to do for the shepherd what only he could do in the first place. Hmm. Next, resist the myth that shepherding happens best in crowds. Uh, Most faithful shepherds know that much of the effective discipleship they've done through the years has happened through individual one-on-one conversations. Uh, So the next one, let me me for sake of time move on to the next one. Uh, Mobilize a decentralized church. Think back to the task of the spiritual leaders explained in Ephesians 4. The assignment has always been to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So shepherds are at their best when they are equipping the shepherds in in so doing are decentralizing the church's ministry function from the center to the missional margins. The last two speak prophetically, not reactively. Shepherding by nature is forward facing in its orientation. And last one, give personal care to a few. Uh, mm. Do for one what you wish you could do for all uh, in this time. Do any of those six uh, with the last minute or so we have stand out to you? I think they're all really good, man. Rather than the one that stands out, I kind of want to push back on one of them if I can. Oh, go for it. Yeah. It says, rather than lamenting all that we've lost due to this pandemic, sensible shepherds remain thankful for God's common grace. I don't think lament and gratitude are at odds with each other. I think you can both lament what we've lost and be thankful to God for his common grace. I don't think it's one or the other. I just, as soon as I heard you say it, I was like, oh, I want to mention something. Cause I think, okay. I think you can do both. And I think that there is a subtle danger in saying, Hey, no need to lament. Good shepherds are thankful. I'm like, no, no, Good no, way. you can, you, you can be both. But I, yeah, I think all these are really, really important and kind of touch on a lot of what I was saying kind of at the beginning too, that I think shepherds, it has much less to do, like you were saying with the crowds and the stage, it's about being present with one another. And right now, 
presence looks a little different, but we do still have an opportunity. And I think that's, that's, right. uh, that's a good reminder. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, Religion News uh, talks about three prerequisites to reopening America. We're going to discuss what Religion News said there. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. As we always say, we're really glad to have you joining us today. We know life is crazy these days. It's just different, although it's starting to feel more normal. Uh, but we hope this show is giving you some laughs, but also helping you process all that we're going through. Uh, kind of like to think that we're doing this all together. So uh, Ian and I actually haven't even seen each other in how long has it been now? Man, it's the longest uh, we haven't seen each other in a year and a half here. Oh, you haven't seen me, but I've seen plenty of you. <laughs> yeah, now we've been in a, we've been, you've been in your basement and I've been recording from my bedroom in for like a month now. So it's very strange <laughs> to think about. I'm actually outside your window right now. <laughs> that was the perfect nervous laugh. Like, ha, 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 I think he's joking. I can't tell. Both of us recording from my bedroom, just opposite. Okay. Ends. All right. See, that's not too far. Too far. <laughs> one step too far. I'm not sure that was only one step. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was a that was a leap and a jump too far. There you go. Well, you can find us on Facebook, including the article that we're about to reference. You can find all our articles there at uh, the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Lots of good dialogue there, and uh, we we really appreciate the community that's being built there. You can find us on Twitter, the Common Good Radio Show. Oh, no, Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is uh, you get your podcast. Well, Religion News, uh, the article is titled this, Truth, Unity, and Solidarity, Three Prerequisites to opening America. So the, all of this conversation about uh, how do we know when to open up? What are the important guidelines for opening up? What needs to be there? Uh, and so this article says, uh, nobody wants our society, economy, government, schools, and our families to stay on lockdown. Everybody wants our lives to reopen. But in order to do that in a way that protects health and lives, three biblical principles are necessary. Truth, unity and solidarity let me cover the truth one and you could cover the unity one uh, and whoever does a better job can cover solidarity so ah, uh, that's appropriate <laughs> he goes let's start by telling the hard truths uh u.s counties uh that are majority black have three times the rate of infection six times the rate of death uh those numbers are just as stunning as the at this point the forty-five thousand now we're up to over fifty-seven thousand deaths from the coronavirus uh Lower income workers of all races and ethnicities who are now considered essential are at higher risk. Race and poverty have become pre-existing conditions. Uh, the entire faith community must use its prophetic and pastoral voice to emphasize the truth. Here is who is most at risk. Those in densely populated urban communities, uh, those who live with more air pollution uh, resulting in conditions like asthma, those with historically less access to medical care, food security and steady incomes. Those deemed essential workers are incredibly diverse healthcare workers, first responders who are daily uh, in the front lines of danger. Uh, it says truth about the trajectory and the spread of virus cases, the rates of recovery or death, and the critical knowledge that comes from testing and tracing must be our morality-centered criteria for reopening in every community in the country. So trying a call to truth 
but how would you answer that, man, when there seems to be, uh, I'm, this is going to sound backwards, but really multiple truths out there. It's kind of like pick your own truth with this sometimes. I, I mean, it's always been that way, though. That's not a new reality that people right. have been banging the drum of listen to the truth. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people, we've mentioned this before, who are actively sharing non-truths, not even maybe necessarily willingly, but because they haven't done the hard work or even the easy work of deciphering whether or not it's actually true. I want to be careful, too, to recognize that some things, like even you take like statistics, you've taken a statistics course before, you know that a lot of those things can be skewed. Then you have full-on conspiracy theorists. It is one thing to say, hey, the information's murky here. It's another thing entirely, though, to share a meme and have someone say, hey, I did a quick Google search. That's actually not true at all. And then I think the Christ-like response is to say, my bad, I'll take it down because it's not yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. So like, there's obviously more more cut and dry areas where something seems or is clearly true or not true. Um, but I want to still be patient enough, I guess, with the stuff that's murky or could be, there could be multiple sides to that story. But it feels like both camps are really, really present and important for us to like dialogue intentionally about. That's right. And this is written by Jim Wallace. Uh, is He's the president, founder, and editor-in-chief of Sojourners. Yeah. And so, uh, so that was the first one, truth. Why don't you cover unity? Yeah, it says, what does unity look like now? From a Christian perspective, the issue is a 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Thus, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. That is true of the body of Christ in urban, suburban, and rural areas. That is true for the body of Christ in the United States of America and the body of Christ in sub-Saharan Africa, where the virus is likely headed in devastating ways. COVID-19 is a threat to the body of Christ and the people served by the body of Christ everywhere and not bound by political or national boundaries. Are all Christian leaders ready to say that? From a secular democratic perspective, perhaps Barack Obama's famous speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention put it best. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and a Latino America and an Asian America. There's the United States of America. We either believe we are all in this together, as the White House briefings say every day, or we do not. Will politicians decide their strategy for this disease based on political and demographic calculations or on the basis of public health, humanitarian and moral criteria that treat every person made in the image of God equally? Let's be honest. The protests we've seen break out in state capitals, all aimed at Democratic governors, typically in key electoral states, are the result of manufactured outrage funded by wealthy interest groups. In an effort to feed those astroturf protests, uh, Trump often stokes the fires of his base by tweeting, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia, by accusing Virginia of wanting to take away people's guns because of the virus. In turn, his base... Uh, show up and the media plasters the images of outrage across its coverage. Will this ultimately become a partisan pandemic with political calculations overriding the crisis in public health? Do all of our citizens count equally in this health crisis or will they count more as members of one political base or another? Are we equally human in our moral and spiritual value and equally valuable as citizens of a democracy or will health and human decision be impacted by political calculations, unity, spiritual and political must be a criteria for when and how we open back up. Man, he's going for it here. You, know, yeah, you can no find thing. this at our Facebook page and uh, give us your opinion. That, but it's hard to even picture our culture being unified, but I, I like what he's saying there. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying I did a better one. I'm just going to give you a break. I'm going to talk about this. I'll read the solidarity one. <laughs> Thanks. How do you show solidarity? Perhaps the most alarming talk is from those who have actually said that lives may have to be sacrificed for the sake of the economy, that some older people... Uh, may have to die to save the economic order. Pundits 
have said that some talk show hosts have said that and some corporations and business leaders have suggested uh, that uh, news reports this week say the White House coronavirus task force members could not publicly defend the way too early actions of the Georgia governor and pleaded with Donald Trump on Wednesday to agree, which he did. Uh, Florida governor uh, Ron DeSantis had already o- reopened some beaches, workers at meatpacking plants in Colorado and Kansas. Uh, it says protecting the vulnerable is not on the agenda. Going further down, it says uh, basically that solidarity, we kind of all need to be in this together. And let me read the last paragraph. These three moral tests, truth, unity, and solidarity, are not only religiously required, but also practical and essential criteria for our reopening to a safer and healthier world. And these three biblical principles, truth, unity, and solidarity, are now essential tests for the health and the healing of the nation. This was written by Jim Wallace, as we said, president, founder, and editor-in-chief of Sojourners uh, and uh, at Religion News. You can find the article uh, at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I'm really curious uh, what people think about that article. So go ahead there, read the whole thing, and let us know uh, what you think. Well, the first hour is in the books here. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about children's mental health and what is actually happening for some kids through this quarantine. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some surprising findings about some kids being happier right now. And then we're going to talk about how do we stay calm during the pandemic. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us uh, today. We're glad to have you with us. You can continue the conversation, read the articles we've been discussing uh, over at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at The Common Good Talk, and you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we even learned, I even learned, that you can uh, you can just talk to Alexa, and Alexa will give you our podcast, so it can't even get much easier than that. Literally, it's the only it's the only thing you could do while still holding two arms full of groceries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alexa, play the common good. Did you it's ever five AM Club Dub says it's good. Five AM Club Dub. Uh did you ever when you would go grocery shopping, are you one of those people when you get the plastic bags, let's say, who just tries to put as many of them on your arms as possible to make as few trips back and forth to the car? Are you that person? Brian. Of course, I'm that person. Okay, good. I am that too. And like sometimes to the point you feel like you're going to cut all blood off to the rest of your arm. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. That's like my battle cry. That's my 300 moment. That's my whatever <laughs> reference. I'm like, there's, I mean, I, I probably waste twice as much time getting so them true. on my arms than walking back and forth two or three times. It's ridiculous. Also, real quick, before I forget, we mentioned 5 a.m. dub club or club dub a couple times. Uh-huh. We also got a review from Travi Duder and his heading says my daily go to. So I want to say thanks to Travi Duder too, because there you go. they both left super, super kind reviews on the podcast. Yep. And you could do that. In fact, we would ask you to do that at the Woo! podcast. You can subscribe rate and review. So an interesting article over at CNN uh, entitled this written by Eth- uh, Alyssa Strauss. Uh, it says why some kids are happier right now 
and other unexpected effects of the quarantine. It says, like mm-hmm. most parents, it tells this one story of this family in California together all day in one house. How could the ki- how would the kids respond? Much better than she ever imagined, as it turns out. Over the course of the past month, she said her kids, ages eight, seven, and four, have become better behaved, kinder to one another, and more independent. She said beforehand, they didn't have a chance to just be present at home. Every day after school, we were running the music, running the gymnastics, and then we'd get home, do homework, and go to bed. Now we have a chance to get stupid and take a break together. (laughs) She said they've really stepped up and they are shining It's been really eye-opening. I don't want it to go back to the way things were. Hold on to that statement. We're going to talk about that. Hmm. It says a number of parents are encountering similar and unexpected response to shelter-in-place rules as this lady, uh, Hagiji. Their children seem happier. They are less busy. They have more control over their time. They're sleeping better, seeing more of their parents, playing more alone or with siblings, and feeling better for it. So let's pause there. Okay. Uh, I'm guessing that doesn't surprise you. And if it doesn't surprise you, uh, do you think that this will actually change the ways family function or is it too ingrained in us the way we were before that we'll go back to crazy and busy? No, I'm not so despondent to believe that any of the negative behaviors that we kind of adopted as a culture are entirely ingra- Honestly, like a big part of why you and I are pastors is because we believe that people can change, that the Holy Spirit can do a work in our hearts, which also means a work in our habits. I think that's part of the nature of spiritual formation is habitual, regular rhythms that we establish, that we build into our lives that we know we would call that sanctification, the way that we grow into Christ likeness. So I think, again, there is some good research. My brother and I have talked about this a number of times there's some good uh, scholarly work to support the idea that somewhere around 40 days is how long it takes to establish like a long-term habit, which is why a lot of people, they don't make it into February with their New Year's resolutions. But if you can make it past 40 days, there is some really good brain science to support. Like, yeah, that's, that is kind of the important threshold. Not that you can't fall off the wagon, but we've certainly surpassed that day amount. So my guess is, I mean, even just physiologically, neurologically, put put the spiritual aspects aside for a second. I, I think the longer that we actually are in healthy rhythms right now as a people, as a community, as a family, whatever, uh, the greater likelihood that they'll actually stick once things start to yeah. reopen. Yeah, and the author goes to make wants to make sure to make a point in this article that they're not talking that there are kids who are in families facing great financial hardship. And oh, we're sure. also uh sickness and other things. So this study is more talking about most of those families, like my family and your family, where everybody's healthy, uh, we still have jobs, and we're really just at home, you know, putting right. this out. And so uh, the author says, while it's too early for any studies on a happiness spike, hundreds of families from around the United States have shared on social media and in discussion boards a sense of relief and joy, which mm-hmm. tracks with what we know about the causes of childhood anxiety and depression today. Here's some stats. You and I have talked about these before. Between 2009 and 2017, rates of depression rose by roughly 60% among those ages 14 to 17, and by Mm. 47% among those ages 12 to 13. Suicides among 10 to 24-year-olds rose 56% 
from uh, from 2007 to 2017. One of the most well-supported explanations for this rise of mental health disorders is that children have too much going on and not enough choice over what they do. Mm. It's a function of a whole society that's overworked and time poor, and our kids are paying the price for it. And so mm. now they go on to say sheltering in place has lowered the stakes and expectations of everyday life. And it's giving kids a chance to have more ch- uh, a, a chance to have more chances. This can include something as simple as your little ones buttering their own bread or elementary school children going on kids only bike rides around the neighborhood. Right. These seemingly small acts can give them a much needed confidence boost. So, again, uh, a a a something that has come out of what was is a bad situation is hey a kind of a chance to reevaluate these lifestyles that we all have and our kids have and again i'm not one who thinks we're going to stick like this like all of a sudden we're going to be uh living like this all the time but i wonder where that pendulum when it kind of goes back to the middle i do wonder where it's going to end up like are people going to work from home more now that we realize we can uh, are we going to eat together more? Are we going to have more family time, less structured things? Uh, are schools going to look different? I really do think that this is an opportunity culturally and as individual families and as the church all across the board. This is an opportunity to go, what did we learn from this and how can this improve the lives in this case of our children? Yeah, but I don't I don't know that opportunity is enough to actually establish long term change. I think we've always had opportunities to eat better to get more exercise, to turn the TV off, to be intentional about Sabbath. Like those things have always been available to us. So in some ways, we're sort of the recipients of a forced respite or a forced right. disruption. And I know plenty of people, I mean, I cannot wait to get back to the way things were. That would include going to school, driving to work, yeah. you know, going to a ball game, whatever. None of those things are bad. My guess is it's going to require some real intentionality and accountability while we're still in the midst of this in order for it to have any kind of long lasting effects. Cause I think it's one thing to sort of like, man, I hope that we keep with this kind of rhythm once everything opens up. But if we're not making any sort of clear, decisive choices as a family, as a community about those things, then at the first sign of reopening or the way things were, we're, we're, we're much more likely to drift back into that. Like, I, I don't know if you want to get personal. I'd be curious to know like what in this last five or six weeks have you or your family talked about like, let's keep doing this. This shift has actually been really good for us. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with one of my kids. I went on a walk with today uh, Uh, and I've gone so many walks now and it was just, all right, what are, what are you enjoying about right now? And just giving the space and I, and, and what they constantly say is that they're walking this fine line of boredom and enjoying the space. So uh, but all my kids, when things are going well, it's talking about like just playing with their brother and sister, uh, just uh, being able to be eating dinner together all the time. Like, I think yeah. they're enjoying the family time. It is this fine line. I wonder what the questions are. Uh, this just popped in my head. Like, what are the questions we should be asking our kids when things go back to quote unquote normal, whenever that is? And I wonder if mm-hmm. there's going to be good times to ask questions like, hey, what do you miss about that time when we were all home? Like what yeah, are right. and just listening to what they say, and you might hear some really interesting answers. Like I really miss dinner. Okay, well we should probably start doing that again, mm-hmm, <laughs> or mm-hmm. Uh, or those kind of things. A really interesting, thought provoking article that I'd encourage you to read. Uh, that some kids they're finding are happier right now, and what does that say about our culture? What does right. that say about us as parents and adults? 
And uh, what can we learn from that? You can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk distraction, uh, an article out of Christianity Today about distraction. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today. Uh, you can continue joining us in the conversation at Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Or if you missed any of today's show, yesterday's show, uh, you can go to 1160hope.com or you can listen to our podcast. Uh, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review that. Uh, that does help us. And so uh, we're grateful for those of you listening into the future on the podcast. And uh, we, we do appreciate that. So uh, before we talk about this really interesting article that came out today at Christianity Today, uh, let me remind you that during this coronavirus pandemic uh, here at the station, we do know that so many businesses have had to close their doors and reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if that's you, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That is all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we'll be compiling all of that information and sharing it with our listeners. It's totally free. There is no catch. You're not signing up for anything. Uh, This is just something we want to do for you. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. And hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully that's helpful for people out there and uh, it serves a good purpose. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you know you did a good job. You don't need me to affirm you anymore. I know. I, I'm like, yeah, it's like when Michael Jordan went out and he knew, like, yeah, I, I did okay today. Like, I knew that went well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you should start comparing yourself to Michael Jordan more regularly. I'm the Michael Jordan of reads. <laughs> Especially on Christian Talk Radio. That is the least exciting Michael Jordan comparison there could possibly be. Right yeah, there. I fell asleep halfway through it. <laughs> So there was a uh, an article at Christianity Today today, uh, ChristianityDayTech.com. It says the noonday demon in our distracted age. What to do when a Netflix binge brings you more joy than God's calling? Uh, and so it's a very long article. But what what's your take? What is your? How would you sum up a little bit of what this article is saying? Well, it begins with this uh, quote from Evagrius Ponticus from On the Eight Thoughts. It says, the spirit of Asidia drives the monk out of his cell, but the monk who possesses perseverance will ever cultivate stillness. A person afflicted with Asidia proposes visiting the sick, but is fulfilling his own purpose. A monk given to Asidia is quick to undertake a service, but considers his own satisfaction to be a precept. And he begins by talking about uh, this first year of his PhD program and how he's feeling kind of lonely, kind of lethargic. And he goes on to say, I first heard the term acedia, what Thomas Aquinas defined as sadness at an interior or spiritual good as a graduate student working as a teacher's assistant for an intro to ethics course. I didn't think much of it at first, but over time I realized this ancient Christian concept was at the center of my daily experience. When my PhD program ended, my fight with acedia didn't. Instead, it shifted to a realm I never expected, my relationship with my kids. It's impossible to describe the joy of being a parent or the love you suddenly feel toward the tiny human who has been put in your care. However, in the daily grind of early mornings, diapers, cleaning, and endless negotiations, parenthood can seem onerous instead of joyful. Even now, I occasionally find myself looking for escape from the life that's meant to be my calling and God's gift. The term acedia has faded from popular use, but if you've been in ministry for long, 
there's a good chance you recognize the feeling of dread when faced with certain tasks or the desire to distract yourself with easier or more pleasant work. Instead of feeling joy at the ministry you've been called to, you avoid it. And nowadays, the rivals for our attention seem endless. Podcasts fill the silence of our daily commutes, not including our podcast, and, <laughs> and push notifications, break our concentration, and keep us reaching for our phones. When God's calling to ministry loses its luster, apps like Zillow and Indeed remind us of the homes and jobs we could have instead. Still, the fight against acedia isn't hopeless. Just as a physician diagnosing a disease can pave the way for treatment, Naming this malady and examining its origins may help afflicted pastors, and I would add all of us, tune out the distractions and return with full vigor to their work. So I got to be honest, I've never heard that word before. And even as I was reading the definition, I was like, oh, yes, I've most certainly experienced this before. (laughs) I've never heard of this word. I can so relate to that, which I don't know. Maybe you're probably more read than I am. Like, is that a term that you're familiar with? No. No, in fact, off air, I asked you how to say it. Like, I don't, um, oh, I that's think true. <laughs> that is what makes this article fascinating. As I read it this morning is this word and how it's built around this word that, that seems to through history have held uh, a lot of meaning that I've never heard of. Right. And, uh, it's this idea of distraction and I totally get this, uh, listen to this paragraph later on. It says in most English translations of the deadly sins, acedia is translated as sloth. But the two words don't mean the same thing. Acedia can manifest as a lack of productivity, but it can also become hyperactivity. Hmm. Hyperactivity and sloth are twin sins, writes Richard John Newhouse in Freedom for Ministry. They're both escapes from the daily renegotiation of our ambassadorship, from the daily resumption of the pursuit of holiness. Acedia is activism grown weary. Listen to that again. Acedia is activism Hmm. grown weary. And so whether it be... Uh, out of uh, hyperactivity or out of sloth, this idea of distraction, when we are faced with things that are either discouraging or are difficult or we don't want to do or we don't want to think about, man, with our phones in our hands and Netflix and everything we have at our disposal, this feels like like the thing that not just pastors, but all of us struggle with in our culture. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been working and I just go, ah, like almost subconsciously go to Twitter or uh, some dumb app, some dumb game on my phone. And I always think to myself, why did I just do that? Because it's yeah. an, it's a way to turn my mind off. Yeah. Uh, and I think as we get just used to turning our minds off, whether in ministry or in your job or with your kids or in your marriage, uh, it's so dangerous because we don't recognize that we're doing it until it's had these drastic effects with our kids, with our spouse, in our jobs. And man, I really appreciate this article. Yeah, one of the things, too, that I'll often say about technology is that it's not good or bad, but it's not neutral. Like technology, I don't think is inherently good or evil, but it isn't neutral. It is forming us, right? And like you were saying, the seemingly mindless reach for the phone, even though you don't have any reason to be reaching for your phone or flipping. Right. You know, there's these habitual things that we do subconsciously are evidence that they're forming us. And uh, this asceticism, this uh, this idea here is really interesting to me because it's 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 curious to me that a word that is so poignant for today is also like out of date. Like, right. <laughs> oh, we don't use that word anymore, even though it most certainly applies. I want to read a little bit more about that quote that I read at the beginning, too, from uh, Evagrius Ponticus. It says he was a fourth century aesthetic and scholar well versed in Greek philosophy and literature. 
He chose this term to describe the distraction experienced by Egyptian monks seeking holiness and divine contemplation in the desert. The temptation of a monk to abandon his spiritual vocation was, for Evagrius, like failing to care for a deceased family member. He tied the term to the noonday demon, a personification of the pestilence described in Psalm 91, 5 through 6. You will not fear the terror of night nor the plague that destroys at midday. Assyria, according to Evagrius, described a particular demonic attack aimed at disrupting the attention and wow. inner quietness of a devout Christian. In Evagrius's day, many Christians chose a monastic life modeled on Christ's 40 days in the wilderness. They moved to the desert to free themselves from distractions so they could do battle against the sinful tendencies of their flesh. Yet, monks were sometimes drawn away by recurring thoughts of food and bodily comfort, sexual desires, anger towards others in their community, and sadness at their own failures. Evagrius systematized these thoughts into a list of eight and with a few changes these became the seven deadly sins we know today isn't wow. that fascinating wow that is really fast i love church history and i don't know much of it <laughs> like when i hear <laughs> stories like that i didn't you know I, if i could go back to college i would take a whole lot more church history classes i think because you start to see how things tie together and how they've right. grown uh, it's just fascinating he uh, this article is really long and really well written by J.L. Ajon, uh, if I'm getting that right, associate professor at Biola University in California. The article ends this way, and I can't uh, encourage you enough to go read it at our Facebook page. Uh, the article ends this way. Uh, Fighting acedia reminds us to hope in God who brings fruit from our labor, even if we struggle to see it. Trusting in his providence helps us hold the course, and after the struggle... Uh, Evagrius says, comes a, quote, a state of peace and ineffable joy. Hmm. Uh, so a, a really well-written article, really uh, deep, and we'd love for you to read it. Reminds me of another thing, man. Christianity Today, just killing it lately. Really have appreciated them. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I was distracted. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> well, coming up next. Uh, out of the Atlantic, how to stay calm during the pandemic. Going to talk about that next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Sim and Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on what was a sunny Tuesday. Doesn't seem to be any longer. And uh, apparently some rain. You, you said it, uh, earlier, a lot of rain in the forecast this week where we're just kind of holding out for the end of the week, which is, you know, a little sad, but... Do you, are there people out there who prefer rain to sun, do you think? Are there people in your life who like a rainy day? Oh, yeah. Enneagram fours, for sure. Like, wow. Okay. Okay. I, I think it's the I mean, it's like uh, it's like sad music or, I don't know, cold pizza. There's yeah, I think there's certainly <laughs> a demographic that prefers it. When we I mean, we were sitting on our couch last night and when the rain started, my wife was like, Ooh, I got to go to bed. I love sleeping to the sound of rain. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of people probably do. So, I, yeah. Plus, also, Brian, it's yes. easy for us to be disconnected from this in our suburban lifestyle, but we need rain. rain. That is true. Yes. Rain life. Like, it's so easy in our, like, concrete jungle to be like, ugh, rain. But we need it to survive and thrive. So, we're grateful and for the rain. And one with a positive outlook could even say that the April showers may produce some May flowers. I mean, I right, I'm just leaving. came You're up doing with that. the rest of the show by yourself. I'm leaving. I came up with that on my own, but you know, uh, no <laughs> you're like the Michael Jordan of making up things on your own. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're my Isaiah Thomas is what you oh, are. <laughs> I really wanted to be Rodman, but I'll take Thomas. 
at the Atlantic, Arthur Brooks, as he often does, wrote a fascinating article entitled Two Errors Our Minds Make When Trying to Grasp the Pandemic. Uh, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. But before we do, uh, we're really grateful for Thrivent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Thrivent's doing? Yeah, a couple of things. You can go to Thrivent.com to learn more. You can also go to Thrivent.com slash Chicagoland if you want to get some more Chicagoland-specific information. A couple of reasons why. I've been a Thrivent member like seven years. I love them and their mission. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around like 100 years, so that should tell you something. But two other things. If you're looking for a career change, uh, they are looking. So if you have an entrepreneurial drive or you like helping people, you can go to Thrivent.com slash careers. Also, in the midst of this pandemic and quarantining and self-isolation and all that stuff, uh, they're providing a whole mess of webinars to kind of help navigate and to be really useful. They're thinking through how can we help care for couples and for parents. So we're posting a lot of those articles and those links to those webinars on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. But you can find out more about that at Thriven.com as well. And I highly, highly recommend that you do. Uh, Arthur Brooks, he writes at The Atlantic. Uh, he wrote about two errors our minds make when trying to grasp the pandemic. So he starts off by talking about checking in on a friend. And the friend said that when she wakes up every day, her first thoughts are about what she would have been doing if it weren't for the virus. Mm -hmm. Then she spends hours reading and watching everything she can about what the models are projecting and what the experts are saying about the crisis. She then confessed that she is frittering away her time thinking about what might have been and what might happen and ends her days frustrated and exhausted. Brooks goes on to say a lot of people are feeling this way as the quarantine drags on. There's so much we're missing from our old lives, graduations, weddings, family get togethers, religious celebrations. There's so much uncertainty about what we can expect in the coming weeks and months. It's natural to feel this way, he says, but many of us are likely fueling these negative feelings more than necessary because of subtle cognitive errors. With knowledge and a little practice, these errors are easy to correct. By doing so, we can improve our outlook on the current situation and learn to be better thinkers in the future. When I read that open, I was like, oh, man, I'm ready to hear these. Because you do hear. I do it. I struggle with this. I'm sure you struggle with this at times. This kind of defeatist, just kind of down about everything that's going on around us right now. And I got to be honest, I've not read a whole lot of his writing before. He's a good writer. Yeah. Yeah, he is. So he gives two two errors. You want me to take this first one? I do. All right. Error number one, confusing disappointment with regret. Ooh, that's good. My late father was a notorious pessimist. I remember once during a long road trip in rural Montana, he announced that we were probably going to run out of gas and have to spend the night in the car on the side of the road. I looked at the gas gauge and saw that the tank was more than half full. And <laughs> I asked why he assumed the absolute worst case scenario was going to happen. He said, if I assume the worst, I'm less likely to be disappointed, he told me, awesome. which... Yeah, I've heard things like that. My dad might have been an extreme case, but in general, people hate being disappointed. Research shows that they are willing to go to great lengths to avoid it. Psychologists call this prospective outcome bias. That's interesting. And find that people are willing to make more of an effort to avoid disappointment than to raise the probability of success. Interesting. In one experiment, nearly 90% of participants who already had an 85% chance of winning a $5 gift card were willing to do busy work on a computer to raise their chances to 97%. But fewer participants, just over 60%, were willing to make the same effort to raise their chances when the likelihood of getting the gift card was low to start with. In the second condition, their chances would have gone from 3 to 15%. Wow. Disappointment is very similar to another unpleasant emotion, regret. It's easy to confuse the two. They both involve wishing something 
better had occurred. Many psychology experiments have thus treated them synonymously. And indeed, people often process these feelings in a similar way through rumination and counterfactual thinking. Rumination, literally chewing the cud, involves turning a scenario over and over and over in our minds. Sidebar, I do this. While mm. counterfactual thinking is the process of imagining things turning out differently. I also do that. This is why my friend was do, uh, what my friend was doing when she imagined her life in the absence of the coronavirus shutdown and what you may be doing as well. Rumination and counterfactual thinking are uniquely human abilities that, in the case of regret, allow us to learn and make improvements after we make an error. Imagine you said something stupid in a business meeting and your boss shows disapproval. You spend the rest of the day turning the incident over and over and over in your head, imagining what could have happened if you had said something else instead. As long as regret does not become obsessive, it is beneficial because it trains your brain to do something different the next time. So I don't have time, I guess, to read all of this. But do you relate to any of that? Is any of that how you have been processing some of this information? I do. I, I mean, he just says at the end, in short, rumination of what you would be doing if it weren't for coronavirus is a destructive waste of your time. I've been guilty of that. Some, oh, we should have been doing this today. We could have right. been doing this. Or, uh, and, and I do. I do get that. That's a, that's a fascinating error. Uh, error number two, he says, confusing uncertainty with risk. Hmm. Uh, why does my friend spend so much time consuming information about the coronavirus? She isn't a scientist and doesn't work on anything related to the pandemic. She still... Hmm. Visits the Johns Hopkins, though, though she still visits the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center every day to see if the curve of cases and deaths is flattening. She watches hours of the news. She is making another cognitive error. She is mistaking uncertainty for risk. Uncertainty involves unknown possible outcomes and thus unknowable probabilities. Hmm. Risk involves known possible outcomes and probabilities that we can estimate. Risk is not especially scary because it can be managed. Indeed, mm. risk management is the core business of the insurance industry. Right. Uncertainty, on the other hand, is scary because it is not manageable. We can measure, we can't measure the likelihood and impacts uh, of the unknowable. In at present, COVID nineteen is more of an uncertainty than a risk. He says. Will you get the virus? What will happen if you do? When will the crisis end? People can opine and make informed guesses, but no one really knows the answers mm. to these questions. And so this is just fascinating. He says uh, this difference between unknown and risk. And he says the solution to these two problems is to follow three simple steps. Mm. Acknowledge, distinguish, and resolve. Acknowledge, distinguish, uh, and resolve. And so... Uh, Wondering with a little bit of time that we have, this article is fascinating, but what do you think about his solutions there and categorizing these two errors in the correct way? Well, I, I imagine people hearing those are like, okay, can you elaborate? So is that all right? If, can I just elaborate with the time we have left? Yep. yep. So in, the, in the case of disappointment, start by acknowledging the fact that you are disappointed at missing out on some things. It would be strange if you weren't. That's a good word. Then distinguish your disappointment from regret by thinking about your own role in this global catastrophe. Note that while this crisis affects you, you had no role in causing it. So rumination and counterfactual thinking aren't productive. Finally, resolve not to let your disappointments interfere with what you can affect and the choices that you can make today. These steps can help you manage living with uncertainty as well. Start by acknowledging that you do not know what is going to happen in the crisis. Next Distinguish between what can and can't be known right now and thus recognize that going on all the available information will not really resolve your knowledge deficit. You won't be able to turn uncertainty into risk by spending more hours watching CNN because <laughs> the uncertainty you seek is not attainable. Finally, 
resolve that uh, while you don't know what will happen next week or next month, you do know that you are alive and well right now and refuse to waste the gift of this day. One more practical suggestion. Limit your consumption of news to half an hour in the morning and stay off social media except to talk to friends. No cheating. (laughs) That's so good. So that's Arthur Arthur Brooks. And uh, if that sounded really smart, that's because he's professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Mm -hmm. Kennedy School and a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School. So we're going to put that up on our Facebook page. I found that to be really helpful. And in the uh, in the uh, idea that we often just do major right turns here, we're going to go from a Harvard fellow to interweb insanity. That's how we are going to end the show the way we do every day uh, with crazy stories from the Internet. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope you're Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing. It's interweb insanity. It is time where we get stories and we read them to you sight unseen. These are straight from Keith Conrad, our executive producer. And uh, a lot of times they make us laugh. Sometimes they make us cringe, but that's what makes this segment fun. And uh, as if it's not risky enough and you get to go first and it's going immediately to Florida. Well, the first one I have here is from Darien, Illinois. And the headline says local pastor loses it on Alexa and throws it out the window <laughs> nope do you know nope. anything about this brian is that well, alexa alexa and i are in a good spot right now oh, we're good yeah, we're good. Sorry, i opened the wrong one florida man pleads guilty to threatening ex-wife mailing rats to her florida home oh gosh an indiana man faces up to five years in federal prison for threatening his ex-wife over several years and mailing a dead rat to her florida home that's weird court records uh court records Court records show 55-year-old <laughs> Romney Christopher Ellis pleaded guilty Thursday in Tampa Federal Court to making in- interstate threats and mailing injurious articles. Gosh. According to a criminal complaint, Ellis had engaged in a four-year-long campaign of harassment against his ex-wife. That's commitment. On one occasion, Ellis <laughs> mailed a package to the victim's home containing a dead rat and a black rose. Holy cow. Postal inspectors executed a search warrant at Ellis's Indianapolis home in February. Oh, rats. That guy's dark. I like your your thought about commitment, though. That was taking a positive <laughs> spin. Hey, man, the, the court records. That's for sure. Next one's out of New York. A reporter, I saw this earlier. A reporter went on air wearing a suit coat and no pants, not realizing everyone could see his legs. No. Yep. Most of us have lost count on the days we've been quarantined, working at home in pajamas and forgetting <laughs> when we were last went outdoors. Uh, ABC News reporter Will Reeve you, are you aware that is Christopher Reeve's son, by the way? Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, nope. did fill us into that little tidbit. <laughs> I tried to play that off like it was my own. Oh, yeah, uh, you kind of did, didn't you? You sold me out. He, uh, he oh, might relate, though, except he seems to have forgotten something slightly more important, pants. Reeve appeared Tuesday on Good Morning America for a segment about pharmacies using drones to b- deliver prescriptions. But at one point, Reeve, who acts as his own cameraman as he broadcasts from home, was positioned so it was quite clear that he was dressed in a suit jacket, but no pants. Viewers quickly took to Twitter to call him out. I have arrived, Reeve tweeted back in the most hilariously mortifying way possible. Do you know you're not wearing any pants? What I don't get, and I'm not um, proposing this, like, just even have sweatpants on. Like, I, you know, I'm not I'm not dressed in a tuxedo all day long, but I'm I'm wearing pants. Like, that's right. he, does, he does say he was wearing shorts. He wasn't in underwear, but they were short shorts if he yeah, was. So. Yeah, I don't know that I buy that. All right, New Jersey. What do we call New Jersey? Uh, the Promised Land. 
no, what does everyone else call New Jersey? <laughs> the uh, Garden State. Sure. Police wrangle loose sheep in New Jersey City. Police in New Jersey said an officer responding to a report of loose animals, not loose, like morally speaking, by the way, loose as in not contained, ended up rounding up a pair of wandering sheep. The Long Branch Police Department said Officer Tracy Wittis was dispatched at the Lake Tekanana, Sakatiki. Is that word? (laughs) Tekanasi? That looks like like to me like Tekanasi. Lake Tekanasi area when two sheep were spotted running loose down the street. If this were a contest, uh, here would be the winner for most unique police call of the week. Waitis was able to shepherd the animals. That's their second use of shepherd on today's show. Back to their owner, who was issued a citation by animal control supervisor Deb Nagel for keeping prohibited farm animals inside the city. Baram you. Baram you. To your breed, your fleet, your plan be true. Sheep be true. you. Next one, we're going back to Florida. Man busted for weapons blames John Wick. Uh, <laughs> not not Keanu Reeves, John Wick. Florida police responded to domestic violence call early Sunday, found Getro Galen, 27, and a woman who said he pushed her and threatened her with a gun. She said he might have ha- have them hidden. The, he might have then hidden the firearm in his Porsche SUV. And when police searched it, they say they found a Glock 21 pistol, a semi-automatic rifle, and a bulletproof vest. Oh, boy. But when questioned about the weapons, the man claimed they weren't his and allegedly used an interesting excuse. He replied, uh, he replied that he had sold the Porsche to his cousin, John Wick, using the name of a movie hitman played by Keanu Reeves. He ultimately admitted he had lied about the name, <laughs> police say, and was arrested on charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and domestic battery. Guns. Lots of guns. I like that he thought it was in any way necessary for him to admit to that because I know. that could not have been more obvious. He's <laughs> like, fine, you guys got me. You All got right, me. I'll come clean on this very convincing <laughs> lie. All right, last but not least, Washington, D.C. Pentagon releases videos of UFOs. Oh, this feels like a Keith Conrad story. The Pentagon... Yeah has formally released three videos of UFOs taken by Navy pilots, which circulated for years following, quote, unauthorized releases. The footage does not impinge on any subsequent investigations of military airspace incursions by unidentified aerial phenomena and was therefore released in order to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage had been circulating. The footage that had been circulating was real or whether or not there is more to the videos. The 2004 video shows an unidentified object some 100 miles off the coast of California, per ABC News. Navy pilots described an oblong object hovering 40 to 50 feet above the water before speeding away. I can tell you, I think it was not from this world. But somewhere out there, something is watching us. There are alien forces acting in ways we can't perceive. Are we alone in the universe? Impossible. When you consider the wonders that exist all around us, voodoo priests of Haiti, the Tibetan numerologists of Appalachia, the unsolved mysteries of unsolved mysteries. I don't know if you saw any videos of those on the news. They are a little creepy. <laughs> they I are have a little weird. Them. Are they actually creepy? Well, you're just, yeah, they're a little weird. They're a little weird. And uh, yeah, you can find them all over the place right now. Go ahead and find it. Uh, uh, Google it and you'll find it. So <laughs> that, that's our answer to everything right now. Well, we're glad you joined us today. It's been a good day. We're glad that you were with us. We'll be together again tomorrow on Wednesday. From 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Stimpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.